This is exactly right. Hi, I'm Erin Welsh. And I'm Erin Almond Updike, and we're the hosts of This Podcast Will Kill You on Exactly Right. We're back with our seventh season, which is bigger and better than ever. Because guess what? We're now a weekly show. This season, we're tackling everything from long COVID to norovirus, from the supplement industry to IVF, and so, so much more. New episodes drop every single Tuesday. Follow This Podcast Will Kill You wherever you get your podcasts. Shit! I forgot to finish my mint. Your mint. Swallow it. Spit it. Should I look and see what's in this bag? Sure. <laughs> it says no thanks on the front of it. I like it already. Did someone forget? Did someone lose their purse? Oh. I think there's birth control in here. Who says it? Let's take it all and see what happens. What's that? Okay. It's something political <laughs> about women. <laughs> oh, fuck your bad vibes. Yeah, oh. sounds good. And then also, fuck women. <laughs> right? Someone left us a gift in the back of this really beautiful little thing uh, that has sand and shells in it, and it says emotional support dirt. So thank you for yeah. that. It's really cute. It's not just Hawaii where you get your emotional support soil. It's everywhere. That's right. Soil, damn it. All across this great land. You can't, Let's start it's over. hard to remember no, 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 the words. Let's go okay, get out or we'll come back. back. Go okay, back. Great, 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 great. We're filming this. Um, <laughs> hi. Hi. Can I just explain these shoes? <laughs> listen. <laughs> listen to me. Stop it. Look right there. Shut up. And listen. <laughs> you don't know me. You don't know anything about me. <laughs> Um, Tell him. Last night, we were in Detroit, Michigan, America, and... Heard of it? I mean, yeah. Um, you're right. That was exactly the right sound to make about it. <laughs> no, it was wonderful. We had a great show. We got driven to the Pegasus Greek restaurant afterwards, which is one of Vince's favorite restaurants. Flaming cheese. They fucking light cheese on fire. Dude. It's a show. It's like a show. It's like dinner in a show. It's so good. Um, and on the way, the guy that was driving us who worked at the theater got a call saying one of them left their shoes. <laughs> and it's this pair of clogs that I've been wearing since the very first show that we ever did to piss my sister off. <laughs> Which even when, before the, the show, you put them on and said, I got to get rid of these. Yes. <laughs> Uh, that, just last time. night I said it because I was like, at this point my sister doesn't care anymore. I'm the only one laughing at this joke. Like it kind of doesn't matter, but I still like is just like a, my little you know fuck you to my sister silently you gotta uh, have all around the nation. You gotta have one. And then, but I didn't want to make that guy drive back to the theater and then drive to the Pegasus like here's your dirty clogs, ma'am. Like that's I don't want to be that person. We're not at that level yet. Not yet. Oh, we'll fucking get there. We'll get there, Riri. We're we're going to get there, Rihanna. Um, That's right. <laughs> so then I was like, please don't come back with those shoes. 
I was like, I don't care. I have these snowshoes. Kiss them into the wind. Goodbye, clogs. Now I'm moving into a weird ug phase that I don't belong in in any way. (laughs) Who do you think got those clogs that's playing there tonight, do you suppose? Oh, I hope it's the Long Island medium wearing my clothes. (laughs) And she's like, oh, I I can smell the ghost of whoever. The ghost of your old tights and your lazy (laughs) fashion sense. (laughs) Teresa Caputo. So what about these ones? (laughs) Oh, these are, um, I ordered ordered these special because, of course, in California, um, we were warned months ago, you're going to places that have weather. So... (laughs) You're, you must prepare. Mm-hmm. And so I ordered special um, snow, like cold weather boots that also have insoles for plantar fasciitis. <laughs> so these are about as Aunt Judy as a pair of shoes could be. Aunt Judy's plantar fasciitis is That's fucking <laughs> helping up again. We all suffer. We play cards together, <laughs> you know. So that's what I did. How about your outfit? Oh, they, this is a vintage dress that I have that I've never, I've worn once. It's good. Thank you. Look at that. Look at that. Look at that. Um, I have, to, and I'm also uh, paired it with my peeling sunburn yes. eggs <laughs> that are so fucking terrible and gross. Who yeah. Know? I've spent, I would say, 83% of my life with a peeling sunburn. <laughs> I think that's healthy, right? That's good for you. Um, yeah, until the, mel- <laughs> the melanoma sets oh, in. right. My full body melanoma that's right around the corner. That's why I've got to live for today with my snow boots. <laughs> oh, speaking of, this is my favorite murder of the podcast. Hi. This is Karen Kilgariff. This is Georgia Hartstark. Thank you. I am Thank a you. little fucked up on cold meds and coffee, so it's going to be Shit. real fun. That's the college girl's speedball, I think they call that. <laughs> and I, I unfortunately, this is how, this is like where we're at now, is you had a, you turned and had to see me pulling my Spanx up backstage. <laughs> Which is, you just shouldn't show anyone that ever. It's a very unattractive. Yet comforting. <laughs> see, I go behind a closed door. Like, I'm always like, see you in 12 minutes and take all my Spanx. <laughs> and then the pulling and the grunting yeah. and the faces begin. I've, I'm always like slightly sweating and then I come out like, what? Nothing. Yeah. I was just thinking. I usually do too, but this time I'm on cold meds. Yeah. So I was like, I'm going to do it right here then. And just fucking- I'm like doing mascara in the corner of my eye. I see this. <laughs> We're just like literally jumping up off the ground to get those spanks on. That's right. Pretty exciting. And they are working hard. God. <laughs> They're doing it. I actually had last night... I bought, um, this is, this is great fucking material, by the way. (laughs) Two hours of space material. Um, Yeah, that's the whole show. Last night I was wearing mistake Spanx because I bought a new pair. I was like, I need a a body armor replacement. (laughs) I need to get new Kevlar for this tour. So I went to buy it and I kind of wasn't paying attention and, um, uh, I only got the half, the one that goes to here, which introduced me to the person that doesn't roll down on. I don't get it. Yeah. It's, it just immediately rolls down. So I had kind of like, um, it almost looked like a th- three-piece sausage <laughs> situation, like a three-length sausage chain <laughs> under this fucking dress. 
I like to go more smooth harbor seal, but it was like boom, boom, boom. I had back cleavage. It was fucked. Thank you. It's a new tomorrow. So um, I actually got these. Sorry, but let me just wrap was, this amazing was, story up. Please don't. Please don't. Please never stop talking about it. I bought uh-huh. this bodysuit thing at the Detroit airport. And I think she charged me $300. I'm not paying, I wasn't paying attention, but I was like, how, how much for the, it's fine, just give it to me, I need it. I have to have it. Were you about to try to introduce? Steven. Oh. 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 Oh, wait. He's here. There he is right there. Steven. If We're he not misses this you, I swear to God. <laughs> Feels good. It feels good. Tell, for the weather. Tell us what restaurant you went to yesterday. Margaritaville. That's right. He's a foodie. He loves food. <laughs> He's a total foodie. I mean, where better to go to Margaritaville than in Niagara Falls, yeah. where it's 30 degrees? Perfect. Yeah. It's like a little vacation in Niagara. We have a photo of you in Niagara Falls. Do 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 do. Brenna. And we then- should have actually photoshopped out Brenna. <laughs> Just like how they do with uh, the boy bands, where it's like, who's that girl? No one knows. You can <laughs> keep liking him. You keep liking him as much as you want to. Millions of hearts break all over the... <laughs> Just me and a waterfall. You know? <laughs> yeah, and a blurry thing right here. She's right off stage with her arms crossed. <laughs> yeah, Get what? over here right now. <laughs> And did you go over in a barrel of the water? Of the... In, in, in my mind, I wanted to, and it would have been so beautiful. Yeah, yeah we would have loved it. And so you had to get drunk. <laughs> oh, of course, just survive a barrel, you know, would have been... Yeah, sure, you never know. Do you want to talk about your hair? Um, just, just, you know, perfect for cold weather, perfect time to cut my hair. Yeah. It was when it's 30 degrees, so, yeah. We like much. it. Yeah, yeah. You sent, it to us, sent a photo to us and said, that, what was it, the... The hippest barista in all of Silver Lake. (laughs) Love it. Dapper as fuck. Ray Morris, ladies and gentlemen. That's him. That's how much we love you, Toronto. We fuck everyone else over when we're like, Steven's here. He's not here. He's here for you. My, da- my dad is staying at my house with the cats, and I got a cat cam, so yeah, Marty's not here. That's right. Uh, I, listen, he, listen. Te- he texts Vince, do you have a pot grinder? <laughs> dad! <laughs> That's my father. He needs to relax, and he's got that glaucoma. <laughs> he does not have glaucoma. Well, he could, he might someday. He should, he sh- hopefully. It's it. preventative yes, weed. It's preventative. Preventative. Um, what else did we want? Oh. Wait. We had a, po- we had a pot-related story. Was it that you got, we, that Vince got a joint last night? <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. This was the best. So after the show, yeah, Vince's friend is like, bleh, bleh, and hands him a joint. It's and legal. They, 
in Detroit. It's no, like, we go. Stop calling it. Stop calling it Mounties. So, so is it? Stop. Yeah. Great. Right. Fucking light them up, everybody. <laughs> Pass to the front. Share with your friends. And I'll have a panic attack. <laughs> <laughs> so we go down, say hi to some people. Go. We get brought up. Then we get brought down to do the meet and greet. And as Vince is coming down the stairs. He realizes he lost the joint. He's like, I fucking lost the joint. Help me look as we go down the stairs. <laughs> we go down the stairs. It's not on the stairs. And he's like, we got to find that joint. And I, in my mind, I was like, I'm going to find this thing. <laughs> and I was like bragging about how great my eyesight is. And I'm the fi- I find the contacts when people lose them. And, shit. and, <laughs> and then- I can't see for shit. Like, if you see me, if we are 10 feet away and you go like this, I will not see you. Like, you have to be kind of right here. It's happened many times in airports. I can it happens a lot. And people are like, she's such a bitch. And it's like, <laughs> no, you're just a blur. Um, and, I, and I could wear glasses. I choose not to. Because <laughs> I don't want to get involved. Anyway. It's good for my anxiety. Anyway. If you have really bad social anxiety, just take your fucking glasses off. It is a miracle. It's a miracle. You suddenly, you're just like, everything's beautiful and blurry and I'm fine. These are anxiety bangs. Are they? Yeah, bangs, man. Hide behind them. Yes. Makes you chill out a little bit. So anyway, I turned on my sixth sense, my weed eye, and (laughs) we walked down into the room that we had been in and I just walked over and I was like, here it is, Vince. And I fucking... In a a corner (laughs) under a door thing. Because if you have the will, (laughs) if you have the passion, you can do anything you want, ladies and gentlemen, and that's why we're here tonight. Motivational speaker. I pulled down my Janet Jackson head mic. So, <laughs> here's your five-tiered, five-pronged. All right. Should we sit down? It's sit-down time, I think, yeah. Um, thank you. I think these are... Um, these Anderson are the Andy Cooper Co- chairs. Yeah, the Anderson Cooper, Andy Cohen chairs. Did we tell you guys about that? How they send chairs, they like do a, sh- a show. I'm sure it's just like this one. And they, <laughs> Anderson Cooper and Andy Cohen send chairs to every venue and they, just leave them there because they're like, well, these are the chairs we want to get drunk in. Yeah. Uh, and so we get to use them. And they look fucking classy. They ship chairs. Yeah. We're not there yet either. Oh, that's right. You will be. <sighs> yeah. My back just cracked like in six places. <laughs> That's not good. That's not good, Grandma. Um, why don't you? Why don't you tell these strangers who've never heard of this podcast? Before, <laughs> no, don't know what a podcast is about this podcast. Um, guys, you know that you've heard this time and again, but we have to say it for the strangers, for the new people, for the forced, the forced audience members right. who. Some of you weirdos bring outsiders. Why? <laughs> You're like, hmm, who's the most judgmental person in my life? I'm going to have, I'm going to invite them to the murder comedy show. My boss? Great. I'm going to bring her. <laughs> my mom that doesn't like modern things? Perfect. <laughs> we'll make her do it. So, some people get worried or maybe offended at the idea of a true crime comedy podcast because they think that something like true crime, murder, the worst thing that can happen to anyone in the world belongs nowhere near comedy. And so uh, just so you know, like if you don't listen to the podcast, you don't know us and you can't give us the benefit of the doubt. You don't know that those two things run parallel 
um, we do our best to not intertwine them in any way because we don't think murder's funny and we don't think loss is funny, but life is shit and you have to laugh at things. It's very important. So if you're one of those kind of people, if you're one of those kind of people that's super offended by just the concept of this, you can get the fuck out right now. It's important. From my heart to yours. But they're Canadian and they're nicer. So <laughs> they're like, they why would you yell at us this way? <laughs> Even my volume is upsetting, I'm sure, right now. Can you tell I cut my bangs while I was on cold medicine? <laughs> With sewing scissors? She just, it was like, Vince came in and goes, four minutes, and then Georgia picks up a pair of scissors. I was like, don't, 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 don't. No, 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 no. Be careful. <laughs> I was like, keep an eye on me, would you? <laughs> Please keep an eye out. There's something about the sound of an old-timey cash register that really takes me back. I know. It sounds like someone is about to hand me an ice cream cone, but it also sounds like we just sold some merch. That's right. And if you're a Shopify user like us, you know that this sound means you just made a sale. Shopify has helped millions of businesses sell their products online, but did you know they also offer the same support for brick and mortar stores? From accepting payments to managing inventory, they have everything you need to sell in person. So give your point of sale system a serious upgrade with Shopify. Shopify POS tracks sales across all your locations. That way you'll always know what you have in stock and where. They also provide reliable tech that fits your unique retail needs, like turning a tablet into a credit card reader. And if you're looking to reach new customers, check out Shopify's marketing tools. They're easy to use and they integrate with all social media platforms. With Shopify, we have a powerful partner for managing our sales. And if you're a business owner, you can too. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period today at shopify.com murder. And here's the important note, that promo code is all lowercase. So go to shopify.com slash murder and take your retail business to the next level. That's shopify.com slash murder. Again, don't forget the code is all lowercase. Goodbye. Georgia, have you ever been blown away by the most simple dish at a restaurant? Like perfectly scrambled eggs? Oh my God, yes, Karen. And then all I want to do is make that dish at home and eat it every day. Well, you probably could as long as you have the chef's secret ingredient, Made In Cookware. Made In was created to bring restaurant quality performance kitchenware to home chefs around the world. For years, they've built their business by supplying restaurants and top chefs with high-end cookware. Some of Tom Colicchio's most treasured dishes at his restaurant craft are made in Made In. Whether you're cooking for professional critics or just the critics you live with, your meals will benefit from the quality of Made In products. Like their carbon steel cookware, it combines the best of both cast iron and stainless steel clad, so it's rugged enough for grills or an open flame. It's the MVP of summer cookouts and cook-ins. What I really love about made-in cookware is that it actually makes something like having a Memorial Day barbecue much more convenient because you can keep everything on the grill if you need to throw, say, a pan of garlic up on the top while you're grilling your steaks on the bottom. It's strong enough, durable enough to do that. If you want to take your cooking to the next level, remember what so many great dishes have in common. They're all made-in, made-in. Save up to 25% this Memorial Day from May 18th through May 27th when you visit madeincookware.com. That's M-A-D-E-I-N cookware.com. Goodbye. Um, I'm first? You are first tonight. Okay. All right. Thank you. It's hard to go first. It is hard to go first. Because you just don't know. Start with local jokes. Okay. 
I don't Tim know. Tim Hortons. What a shithole. Am I right? <laughs> oh. Mm. They're like, that's our church. <laughs> Get out. We hate you. All right. Well, so I'm going to do Project Hitchhiker, which is the first conviction in Canadian history without a body or a crime scene. Okay. It is fucking, but yeah, it's bananas. There's fucking twists. There's turns. Things of this nature. It's okay. fucking bananas. Prepare. I'm going to sit forward. I wish you would. And pull up my dress the whole time. <laughs> Take a listen to this. Okay. It's 1991. Take a listen to this. I don't know. <laughs> what choice do I have? <laughs> Half the shit I'm saying tonight. Let's blame it on cold mess. And me, please. Okay. It's 1991. The best, everyone knows the best time of the last century. Oh, my uh, God. <laughs> Beautiful. Dis. Uh, great. <laughs> Detective Herb. Uh, Her- Herb. <laughs> I fucking knew I'd do that. I was like, don't do that. Don't do that. So I did it. <laughs> Sorry. It's because my mom yelled at me when I was a kid because I would call herbs herbs. <laughs> and, I'm, and I'm traumatized. Okay. So you have the panic, like, half second before where you're like, I'm saying it wrong? Yeah, so yeah. say it right, and then you correct, overcorrect. Herb. Herb. Herb Kerwin. He's, uh, he joins the homicide unit. This is detective. He had served as an undercover officer with the RCMP. He was fucking doing drugs and, and like, gangs and shit going uh, undercover. Oh, not uh, doing drugs. No. Yeah, yeah. I was not trying to indict him. Right. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. All right. Okay, so I got a lot of this information from a show called The Detectives. It's a great fucking show. It's when, I, yeah, you guys. Uh, it's, there's like a detective who's like all hard-boiled and shit, and they tell their like, their like most insane story that they can't stop thinking about. So this is his story. I'm watching it. Um, I couldn't get a picture of him as a young, a youngin in 91, but I'll show you who his play, he was played by Eric Johnson, this actor. Oh. Very handsome. What? He's Canadian, of course. He uh, he's, he's was in Smallville, all these things, but most notably he was in two of the three Fifty Shades movies, as we all know. <laughs> Did he work at the hardware store where she worked? <laughs> the dumbest fucking plot point of all time in any film, including The Room. The idea... The idea that Dakota fucking Johnson worked at a hardware store... She wasn't even the cashier. She was like roaming around like, do you need help with hammers? From you? Fuck off. I can't. People talk about how bad that movie is in all these other ways. I'm like, start with the hardware store. Always start with the hardware store. I mean, look at this hard-boiled. He, look at his hair. He's been up all night working on this case. Doesn't he look like John Hamm's cousin? Yeah. yeah. His Canadian cousin. His Canadian cousin whose mom has red hair. So there's like a little something yeah. else going on. Canada, this is your John Hamm. Congratulations. Congratulations. All right. Go to that bridge and find him. <laughs> well, so in March of the, uh, 91, when he goes to homicide, uh, along with his normal workload, all of the detectives have to also take on a cold case, which I think is fucking awesome. So he is given a case that's only a year old, but is already cold because there's no body or crime scene, which is so crazy. On April 16th, 1990, this is the case he gets, at about 2 p.m. in Pickering, Ontario. It's either 40 miles or 40 kilometers east of Toronto. 
I was Same not death. paying attention. Same death. <laughs> <laughs> it's 40 <laughs> things away. <laughs> you know. I mean, I, no one's going to like listen and be like, well, I'm going to Pickering and oh, I, Georgia said it was this long. So I'm just going to draw, I'm going to base my <laughs> I time. don't need to get gas. Yeah, yeah, I don't she need to said get it was 40 kilometers. I don't need to leave at that time because it's Georgia. I already know. No one's going to, hopefully no one does that. Please don't ever do that. You got to hope. About anything we say? No, nothing. So, okay. 14 year old Julie Stanton, she goes missing. Um, this is her. Sweet baby angel. Amazing bangs. I love her. Okay. She, uh, she's this sweet teenager. She's 14. She's last seen wearing a dark bomber style jacket, blue jeans. And a neighbor said that they saw her get into a late, late seventies model, uh, Monte Carlo car, Mm -hmm. uh, driven by a white male with shaggy hair and a scruffy look. So they look into Julie's life and lo and behold, Julie's, uh, BFF, Julie's best friend, uh, Kim. Forever. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I know the type, yes. <laughs> the kind that will put their spanks on in front of you. That's right. It's on. Um, it just so happens that her best friend, her, the dad, not only fits that fucking, he also drives a 79 Monte Carlo. So they're like, oh shit. Mm-hmm. This fucking asshole, his name is Peter Stark, he's 47, he, and he has a record of violence against women. In 1981, Peter was dating a 31-year-old uh, woman named Maria Woods when she disappeared. He, he was considered a suspect, but her body wasn't found until five years later, buried in the woods. And by then, the decomposition is so bad, they can't tell a cause of death or pin anything on him. Um, and there's not enough evidence to hold him in Julie's case, and that's when it runs cold. And then our friend, Herb, gets the case. Um, Herb. Herb. <laughs> Oh, God. Okay. So, so he's like, let's fucking do this. He starts digging into this asshole Peter Stark's life. He re-interviews Stark's wife, Allison. At this point, they're, they're um, separated. And so she's willing to talk a little bit more. Because, and Peter has moved to Niagara Falls, where Stephen mm-hmm. likes to vacation. <laughs> Stephen's favorite place. Right. Yeah. Oh, God. That didn't work. Okay. So she says that after Julie disappeared, Peter's behavior had started to change. He started wetting the bed and getting paranoid. An adult man in his 30s? Jesus Christ. Fucking, that's... What color is your favorite flag? Uh, red. <laughs> the reddest, that, that thing is like a scarlet flag. Oh, yeah. My lips and maybe my teeth. Oh, I mean, it's horrible. And then also I just flash back to all the time. Uh-oh. That I wet the bed as an adult. <laughs> no! <laughs> I'll tell you the one, the one through line, the theme. Oh, I know what it is. Jägermeister. <laughs> Have you ever had I that experience? Did not know that. What, oh. It will put you out. You and your bladder will be out f- for the evening. Do you have those dreams where you're trying to pee everywhere? <laughs> I have those rooms all the time where it's like, why can't I pee? I'm in the toilet. I'm in the bathroom. And you wake up in your bed. Shit. I actually, (laughs) the first time, sorry, sorry. Please. The first time I drank Jägermeister, 
it was um, me and my sister and Adrian and Adrian's brother Dominic and Adrian's future husband Robin and so it was all these cool way older guys and we partied we drove to like a forest of redwood trees and then just partied in the trees (laughs) (laughs) so country but these like these guys were like Karen come with us and they just it was like I got picked to be cool because they could tell I was an alcoholic when I was 16 (laughs) And then it was like someone cracked open this bottle of Jaeger and they're like, have you ever heard of Jaegermeister? And then we just stood in a circle drinking Jaegermeister in a circle. All I remember after that is that I lit a cigarette in my sister's Mustang on the way home and she was so angry. She's like, what are you doing? Put that out. I was like, I gotta be myself. (laughs) You can't keep me from being me. I'm 16. I badly need a cigarette. I have to have this marble I found at the bottom of mom's purse. (laughs) I wake up in the morning in my clothes, in my bed. Oh, no. I had wet the bed, so I like pulled back the covers. I took all my clothes off, put them in a pile. I walk into the bathroom. And when I come back out, my mom is standing in my bedroom doorway. And she goes, you wet the bed. (laughs) And then just walked away. I figured out out why Mimi is your favorite. (laughs) She pees the bed all the fucking time. I relate. She's such a drunk. And she loves Jaeger. (laughs) That cat is an alcoholic. That's true. Okay, so, oh, here's a photo of him. Uh, like, he, you know, it's like creepy. Professor. Ewan McGregor. Yes. No, they probably want a Canadian actor to play him, though. Okay. Um. <laughs> Shoot. <laughs> no, don't yell Canadian actors. <laughs> That'll make me really angry. All I'm thinking of now is like, name a Degrassi character, name a Degrassi character. <laughs> I know. I was like, Corner Gas? Was it called Corner Gas? <laughs> you got some good TV up here. Yeah, you, you really do. do. I fucking And think. some really bad TV. <laughs> like some of the worst I've ever seen. <laughs> Where it looks like it's like two cops talking to each other, but they're holding a coffee like right down here. <laughs> it's like, when's this over? Okay. <laughs> Got back, get back to our day job now. Um, okay, so Al- Allison, the wife, uh, says he starts wetting the bed. He gets all fucking creepy. And then she's like, you know, I should tell you the story. Uh, so he's super into this role-playing game. Let me tell you about it. <laughs> Peter, this fucking dick, he has her pretend to hitchhike while she's wearing a blonde wig dressed up as a teenager. That's his fucking fetish. Uh, that's not a game. Nope. Or a fetish, actually. He drops her off on a lonely road, picks her up, you know, they're role-playing. He uses a fake name. After driving around a bit, he pulls over and asks if she thinks he's dangerous. Then they, they fucking hook up. But it's also, he, like, he needs to get a little violent with her. Um, and he's, she's like, he never intentionally hurts me, though. It's just like, we have this role-play thing. Um, but see, she has no idea about his fucking history, For example, you see, in 1970, he had picked up Nancy Nelson. She was an 18-year-old blonde hitchhiker. He tells her his name is Michael and asks if she's scared of hitchhiking and if she thinks he's dangerous. Before she can respond, he stabs her multiple times. She fucking survives. Shit. This amazing 
woman, she survives. She almost dies three times during surgery, but she fucking makes it. Of course, she's so traumatized by this, and I'm sure the aftermath, too, because it was the 70s. They were not very victims advocacy people. Um, so she, she couldn't, she was too traumatized to testify against him for attempted murder. And I feel like this wouldn't happen now. So instead they, um, they put him up on lesser charges of assault and he gets six fucking months. Months? Because, yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's horrible. Um, so Allison, uh, then admits that uh, to the detective, to Herb, that the, uh, (laughs) Jesus, I really didn't do that. Herb, 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 Herb. (laughs) No, you have to act like you did it on purpose. Detective Herb. Yep. Um, he's like deserves so much respect. And I know. I'm just being, okay, I'm trying to be. Sorry. No. All I can think of is just a strip of Rosemary. <laughs> solving, solving awesome cases. <laughs> Ooh, write that. Steven, write that down. Steven, please make a note. Please. So, so Allison, the wife, also admits that on the day Julia had gone missing, fucking Peter Stark had been bugging her to skip work and play the hitchhiking game. And she's like, fuck you. She'd been like putting him off all weekend and she goes to work the same day Allison disappears. He picks her up later, later from work. He's late. He's dirty and disheveled. He says his car broke down. He says, she tells the detective that the, uh, he said the catalytic converter, thank you, Mm -hmm. stopped working. And she's like, great. And then detective Herb is like, (laughs) hey, guess what? Monte Carlos don't fucking have one of those. Catalytic converters? Yes. Awesome. Yeah. That's, that's that rad, like, detectiving. Yeah. Where someone's like, what did you just say? Yeah. Like, that's that moment where as you're watching it as a TV show, you're like, what? What does he know? What yeah. does he know? And then, he, and then it cuts to break, but then he has his coffee here. Yeah. And then he's like. <laughs> okay. Uh, so, but of course, this isn't enough to, you know, charge him. So, he can, so uh, Detective Herb starts to rework the case. So then in June 1991, okay, cut to fucking Niagara Falls, where Stephen is, and um, the, this, this fisherman and his son are fishing. They find by the um, waterside a piece of cement. They think it's rock. Listen, I, this doesn't make any, they just start jumping on it. I don't know. This, they definitely went to Margaritaville before they found that rock. That's what Niagara Falls is like. It's fucking nuts. Who knows? Maybe they have a flask. I don't know. Uh, But it breaks apart and reveals dismembered body parts. A father and son? Uh Uh-huh. That's horrifying. Yeah. And the victim is a young girl. She seems to be 13 to 15 years old and blonde. So, of course, Detective Crowain thinks it's Julie Stanton who had gone missing. Um, So he's like, he sends all of his information that he has on these cases that he thinks Stark has done to Niagara Falls homicide detectives and, um, and to downtown Toronto, North York, and Pickering because he thinks they're all connected. And back when he worked in drugs and gangs, they did this insane thing where they shared information with other districts and solved crimes together. Yeah. It's the wave of the future. It's yeah. the wave of the future. So luckily, I mean, it's incredible that he came from there. I was like, why the fuck don't we do that? Let's do it. So he started doing that with other jurisdictions. Um, and so, because he's like, well, all Peter Stark has to do is keep moving and no one will put together that he's a fucking maybe serial killer. Yeah. So, okay. So, so he gets all the, so he, okay. So now he goes to interview Stark's daughter 
AKA best friend forever, Kim. Um, she doesn't have the same mother, but so she was super shy girl and like didn't have a lot of friends. But then Julie just like, op- Julie was really open and just came up to her and befriended her and they became best friends. So Kim doesn't believe her father would do anything to Julie. And he says that Julie and he were friends too. She just like can't imagine that her dad would do anything. But Detective Herb tells her that uh, her father's a killer. I think, I don't know what exactly he tells her, but it gives her like... How about everything you just fucking told yeah. us? But it's like, <laughs> she's like a 14, 15-year-old girl. Can you fucking imagine? Yeah. Um, so she finally breaks down and says that her dad had admitted to her that he picked Julie up the date she went missing. But he's like, but he said he didn't do anything to her. He dropped her off later. So she just didn't say anything? <sighs> yeah, so she didn't know. I mean, so... Um, Meanwhile, this case from Niagara Falls cement time, uh, the dental records come back. It's not Julie. It's a 14-year-old girl named Leslie Mahaffey. Yeah. Wait, just wait. Do you know the name yet? No? Mm-hmm. Okay, great. Um, so she had disappeared in June of 1991. She was a resident of Burlington and a grade 9 student. Love your coat factory. <laughs> Amazing. The prices are great. Not just coats, they're more. Oh, there's, uh, there's kind of weird raincoats and there's really bad shoes. Incredible. So it's not her, but they're like, well, maybe the girl it is, Leslie, maybe he killed her. Um, so he, uh, da, 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 da. he's considered a suspect, but then a hair sample from that they think was the killer from the cement comes back and um, it doesn't match Sark. But the case does help that, does help that, okay, it does help Detective Herb put this task force together and, and the government decides to fully fund this task force that uses all juris- jurisdictions to go after Peter Stark, which is fucking awesome. Um, there are nine different agencies. They join together, they pool their unsolved uh, cases where Peter Stark is a suspect and they fucking go after him together. It's pretty rad. The first thing they do is reevacuate the site where Maria Woods, Peter's ex-girlfriend, had um, her when her body had been where her body had been discovered mm-hmm. a decade earlier, mm-hmm. and uh, they find they find when they re-examine it, they find a bullet and casings which hadn't been fucking found back then. So now they have a cause of death and solid ev- evidence because ballistics show that the casings come from a, a rare World War II bullet that can only be fired from a Colt 45 automatic pistol. And it's the same pistol and kind of pistol that Stark's father had owned and gave to him around the time Maria went missing. Mm. Fucking smoking gun. But... Literally. Literally. Except he had gotten rid of it, of course, so they can't tie him to it concretely. Um, And so Julie's fucking badass parents were pissed at, and they knew that this guy had something to do with it. So they had been fucking confronting him constantly. And at one time they walked up to his car, banged on his window and just screaming, where is Julie? Like they fucking knew Shit. he did it. Um, so, so Detective Herb asked them to back off a little bit. They're going to like try to get him. And they're like, great, we'll do that. But you better get him. <laughs> hurry the fuck up. Hurry up. Yeah. So this, so they start surveilling him, but Peter Stark is really paranoid. He's totally aware at all times whether someone's following or not. Not paranoid because he's being fucking followed. He's right. So he drives hundreds and hundreds of kilometers out of the way and like around places and things um, just just to see if he's being followed. One day the team is following him and he pulls over next to a railway track 
and he starts walking towards the tracks and the, and the team thinks he's either trying to draw them out to see if they're following him or, and then he stands in the middle of the tracks and like, what if he's trying to fucking kill himself? We need to nab him before that happens. So, um, they come up with a story in order to approach him. They call a patrolman. The patrolman comes and, uh, in the back pocket, they have outstanding fraud charges against him that they can use to bring him in. So he, they bring him in um, for questioning, and the surveillance team, while they're, while they're questioning him, they go in and fucking tap his car. Oh. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know. <laughs> they put it on up in there? Right in the catalytic converter. Right up in the Plinko. That's <laughs> <laughs> So they listen to him for a month and um, waiting for him to trip up. One day they overhear a woman's voice on the wire and they realize it's his estranged wife, Allison. She had fucking come all the way to Niagara Falls to get back together with him after all this. And they're like, God damn it. Um, So... There, he, so let's see. They, they, and they're worried too because if, if she goes back together with him and they try to bring him to trial, they can't bring, they can't make her testify against her husband, right? It's right. a law for some reason. <laughs> it's the law. It's the law. <laughs> uh, but then they hear Allison asking Peter about the day of Julie's disappearance. She tells him she, she has doubts about him and accuses him of being involved. He gets hostile and denies everything. And so they're like, look, if, if fucking Allison can't get a confession of, out of him in the car, like, we need to try ourselves. So um, he's been questioned before, but Detective Herb doesn't want to blow their chance. So he fucking gets the FBI involved, and he's like, what's the best way to do this? And they're like, here's the thing. So they get an officer to arrest him that looks like Julie, who had gone missing, blonde, you know, young officer. They parade him past the fucking, his 1979 Monte Carlo that they, he had sold. They fucking tracked it down, bought it back. So like while they're bringing him through the fucking parking lot with the blonde fucking patrol officer, they walk past it and he's like, oh shit. Um, inside the station, he passes by a cop listening to the tapes of his conversation with Allison. So they're like, we gotcha. Um, <laughs> Another room is full of photos, all designed to make him look like they make it look like they had enough evidence against him. This is like a haunted house for a serial killer. Yeah. And then there was a bowl of grapes. That <laughs> they made him put his hand into it. They like can't eyeballs. touch you. They, if they jump out, they can't touch yeah, you. Yeah, they can't touch you. Not at Universal Studios, no. anyway. Legally. Um, and then. So they do have a ton of evidence, but they don't have a smoking gun for the conviction. So they try to get a confession from him. Um, and he only confesses at, what, before, at one point that he picked her up that day, but he says he dropped her off after and had nothing to do with it. And we all said bullshit. <laughs> so they put him in jail, and a jailhouse informant comes forward saying that Peter Stark had told him that he raped a girl and killed her with an axe, and he's willing to testify against Peter Stark. He does, and the other person uh, who fucking testifies against him is his daughter, Kim. Whoa. Yeah, this fucking amazing chick. Um, she tells the court that her father had been missing an axe that was on his boat since, had, since before Julie disappeared. The axe is gone. So... On December 4th, 1994, Peter Stark is found guilty of first-degree murder for the death of Julie Stanton. It's not the first trial that's, um, that has a case without a body or a crime scene, but it's the first conviction in Canadian history of that. Wow. Isn't that amazing? Yes. Good, Good job. job, everybody. You guys. You did it. You did it. Two years later, in 1996, Julie's body is found um, when a farmer in the 
Manvers Township finds her skeletal remains on his property about 80 kilometers from where she went missing. Um, Julie's case is the first time that a multi-jurisdictional task force is created to investigate a serial killer. Good job. Ever? I think so, ever? yeah. Ever? Jesus so, Christ. a photo of him. Oh. Um, yeah. Oh, Russell Crowe, why did you oh. do it? Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. Jesus. I know. So, um, th- so this, the project, which was called Project Hitchhiker, leads to the formation of another task force called Project Green Ribbon, which investigates the death of our fucking girl from Niagara Falls, um, Leslie Mahaffey. This leads to the arrest of... Well, uh, 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 uh-huh. uh, Ken and Barbie killers. Yeah, fucking well, Paul the Scarborough Mama Rapist. Mocha and Paul Bernardo in fucking 1993. Yes. <laughs> Shit. Oh, wonder you it. made that noise. Yeah. God damn it. It all comes together. I've literally done I've literally done the Ken and Barbie killers, the schoolgirl killers twice. And I still didn't recognize that name. And what's so sad? Damn it. She's the one oh, she's the one who was late at past her curfew and her mom locked her. Mom locked her like, mm. Kills mm-hmm. me inside. It's terrible. It's the worst. Um, so, so Peter Stark would have been eligible to seek full parole in February of 2017, but luckily he died in August 2016 at the age of 71. <laughs> wow. Julie's family, who, you know, were fucking like on this dude, they said um, at the news of Stark's deaths that it's bittersweet. And Julie's gravestone reads that you'll reads you'll never walk alone again. And they say that they are at peace knowing that Peter Stark will never hurt anyone ever again. Yeah. And that's fucking pro- that Project Hitchhiker. Amazing. Yeah. Twists, turns. Amazing. That's a good detective. The detective that's like, just tell me. FBI, yeah. how to do it. Just share your information. Yeah. Just read my information. Like, guys, let's do it. Huddles Please everyone up. Do it. They have one of these. Um, <laughs> they have this. What? It's like an alley rally at Margaritaville. <laughs> <laughs> if you're like me, you're always looking for a story to dive into. Whether it's a family drama or a mystery to solve, the key to getting hooked is the details. I need rich visuals and intricate storylines, and June's Journey has that and more. June's Journey is a mobile mystery game that follows June Parker, a daring young woman, on a quest to uncover the truth about her sister's murder. This is your chance to test your detective skills because you'll play the game as June herself. Explore beautifully designed scenes from the 1920s, like lavish estates and gardens, and don't forget to keep an eye out for hidden clues. There are twists, turns, and catchy tunes, all leading you deeper into the thrilling storyline. And if you play well enough, you could make it to the detective club. There, you'll chat with other players and compete with or against them. June needs your help, but watch out, you never know which character might be a villain. Shocking family secrets will be revealed, but will you crack the case? Find out as you escape this world and dive into June's world of mystery, murder, and romance. It's all just one tap away. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. That's June's Journey. Download the game for free on iOS and Android. Goodbye. Tonight, I'd like to start my uh, presentation (laughs) with a quick... Um, uh oh. Which way did you go with it? No, no, I'm like just excited. Oh, it's the, uh, the big arrow? Yeah. <laughs> 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 <That way. laughs>
Okay. Oh. <laughs> this is my report on the province of Ontario. <laughs> The Canadian province of Ontario is one of Canada's 13 provinces and territories. Stand up. It is, it is the second largest. <laughs> it, it is the second largest province in land area and the largest in total population. Ontario is home to the nation's capital city, Ottawa, and the nation's... and the nation's most populous city, Toronto, which is also Ontario's provincial capital. The name Ontario is derived from the Iroquois, Iroquoian word meaning beautiful water. Ontario was settled by the Algonquin tribes in the north and west and the Iroquois and Wyandotte Huron in the south and east. The official language of Ontario is English. <laughs> Ontario, the Canadian province, not to be confused with the California city of Ontario, <laughs> which was named after the Canadian province, Ontario, which is definitely where I am right now. <laughs> the official flower of Ontario is white trillium. The official bird is the common loon. <laughs> Aren't we all? <laughs> so common. And the official website is www.ontario.ca. All right. Please accept my apology, Canadian province of Ontario. I'm so sorry. <laughs> you had to give them that You had to give them that Great job. I'll never make that mistake for like four more episodes. <laughs> okay, tonight I'm going to do the Massey Maid murder. Uh, oh, uh, wait. He's Don't look at him. <laughs> Someone in here just lost their soul. <laughs> Don't look into the eyes. One, two, three, not it. <laughs> uh, Let's see, I got a lot of my information from the CBC News, which apparently is a big deal up here. There's, they made um, um, Missing and Murdered. Is that right? Yeah, the podcast. Oh, yeah. They're making some good podcasts. Yeah, for sure. Those CBC people. Right. Congratulations job, on your guys. podcasts, <laughs> province of Canada. <laughs> There's also a book called The Massey Murder by a writer named Charlotte Gray. And um, this... Your girl... <laughs> she is one of my best friends. <laughs> um, uh, and this story was suggested to me by my friend, Auntie Donahue, who was also a great writer. Uh, and she's here tonight. Get her book of essays, Nobody Cares. It will help you. It will help you. I'm telling you, it will help you. I've read it. Okay. I take you now to 1915 Toronto. Okay. <clears throat> We're going there in our minds. Right. Everything is brown and beige. <laughs> I don't know why. 
So Toronto in 1915 is very conservative. It's very class-oriented. Um, men are being shipped off to fight in World War I. Young women are actually being shipped into Canada from England um, to become maids for the upper class. Oh. Um, and there's a lot of wealth in the city, and there's a lot of need for uh, maid services. And um, one of the biggest and richest families uh, in Toronto um, was the Massey. Oh, let's see. Look at, uh, this is old Dan Massey. Now, he loved to clear-cut land and then sell it to people. Right. That was his passion. <laughs> he liked to cut down trees and just kind of throw them away and then sell land to people. And so in doing so, he began to discover that bigger machines were needed to work the land. And because, um, you know, especially this part of Canada, there's so much farming, um, he started uh, like a farm equipment company. Well, he actually didn't start it. They, he got together with like a blacksmith. It was so fucking long ago. It was like the <laughs> 1700s. They started making things that would make their jobs easier. And then Daniel's son, Hartmaster, is the one that took everything his dad did and was like, we're taking this to the, to the next level. Oh. And so eventually it was like, oh, the fucking Massies were all over the place. That is our new fucking logo. Isn't that? That is so rad. Shouldn't we just go with a tractor? Yeah. Yes. For no reason. No. I love it. Me too. It's the Maxi Massey. Um, <laughs> it goes all the way to the floor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Hart Massey develops his father's small business into a huge success. He has um, a son named Charles Albert Massey, and uh, that's who manages the business um, his father started. Um, to this day, there are still a number of buildings and institutions named after the Masseys, including Massey College at the University of Toronto. Oh. <laughs> no one gives a shit about the University of Toronto. I love it. <laughs> Every city we go to, you name any college, and people are like, I studied there. <laughs> they just want to talk about college so much. We don't. Um, do you want to give us a mascot? The screaming carpetbaggers. Yes. Yes. They just run around screaming. You up and down the basketball court, that screaming at the top of their lungs. Oh, also, uh, the concert venue, Massey Hall. Did you guys see your first show there? Your first punk show? Is it punk? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it was just like a punk venue. It's really small. Yeah. And the bathroom is sick. Okay. <laughs> There's also a haunted steakhouse. Oh. <laughs> cool. We'll talk about that later. Um, okay. So Charles' son, um, uh, he has a son named Bert Massey. And he's not quite Massey material in his grandfather's eyes. Um, I mean, who among us? Right? How, how could anyone Live reach the heights, <laughs> the Massey heights? Yeah. So, um, so Hart favors, Hart is the grandfather. He favors Bert's cousins, Raymond and Vincent, gives them more money and like good jobs at the company. Oh, let's take a look at Bert. Oh, he looks pissed. It, his oh. grandfather doesn't like him because he overplucked his eyebrow. <laughs> Is, that's my theory. I don't know if it's true. Or does he look like the dude from that show, Mr. Robot? Oh. You know. Yes. Malin Blalink. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Mayim Bialik. Yes. Yes. <laughs> That's the one. Yep. Next show, you she have to stand up and read best. an apology. To 
<laughs> to my Bialik. Dear Blossom, I'm so sorry about all those hats they made you wear in the 90s. Okay. She's not very female friendly, so we don't care. Oh, is that true? Yes. Let's not get into it. Okay. Let's focus on Bert Massey. Total loser. Um, <laughs> that is a center part. That is a center right up the middle part. They cut it off because they don't understand what's good. <clears throat> okay. So Bert works at a Studebaker dealership. Um, the Pontiac of the 19, early 1900s. <laughs> He's selling cars to support his wife, Rhoda, and their 14-year-old son. Although he was quite popular with his peers, um, Bert is often referred to as a cad, and mostly because of how he treats women. Um, he's known for his interest in sports cars and fast women. That's how Bert is known around <laughs> town. <laughs> Which back then just means like, like a car goes 30 miles an hour and a woman like shows her ankle. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> He's like, check out the ankles on that one. And she wants it. <laughs> she wants joint health. <laughs> it must have been edgy, though, at the time. Yeah, yeah. Because there was only four cars. Um, okay. So in 1913, Bert and his wife decide that they uh, want to hire a maid. So they hire 18-year-old British maid. Uh, her name is Carrie Davies. She is hired to work at their nice but modest two-story brick house at 169 Walmer Road. Do you guys live there? Look at that. Who lives there? Now it's apartments. Oh my God, who lives there? After party. Let's go there after. <laughs> Front lawn. Can you imagine living there now and being like, we got to get a maid. <laughs> yeah. I can't handle this whole house by myself. It's huge. No offense. I guess that's offensive. I'm sorry. Is it? To someone. <laughs> Everything's offensive to someone. That's right. I think that's what we've learned vis-a-vis -vis social media. Um, so, Carrie Davies was born in Bedfordshire, England in 1897. She's the oldest of four girls. Uh, her family is very poor, um, but... Growing up, she is known as a kind and virtuous girl. In 1913, she's 16 years old. Her disabled uh, father, who was a veteran of the Boer War, dies. And um, just to make it as Dickensian as possible, her mother begins to go blind. Oy vey. So her mother can't work, so she has to work. And that's when she finds out about the Canadian program to rec recruit young, respectable, trustworthy, unmarried, working-class women to come over and work in Canada. So she signs up, and she is placed in the Massey's household. Um, she has no social life. She doesn't spend any of her earnings on herself. She sends everything back to her sisters and her mom. In early February of 1915, Rhoda Massey decides to take a trip out of town to visit her family. Um, she brings the 14-year-old son, and it, that leaves Bert alone to manage the household. With. And the household is... Carrie, basically. Mm -hmm. So, on Sunday, February 7th, Carrie's working in the house, and Bert uh, basically catches her, is the phrase they use, <sighs> and kisses her twice. Um, she, uh, he tries to make further advances, but she wrenches away from him and goes and hides in her bedroom. Um, so, it's just that she's stuck in this house. It's where she works. It's where she lived for two years. Yeah. So, she has uh, nowhere to go, and she's, and it's her job. Like, she doesn't want to lose her job. Yeah, terrifying. Um, so, she's upstairs uh, hiding in her bedroom, trying to act casual. Later that <laughs> night, 
Bert Massey, um, calls out to her and asks her to come in and make his bed. Um, so she has to go. She does. This time, of course, Massey forces himself on her again, mm. more aggressively. But once again, Carrie breaks free. This time she runs out of the house and across town where her sister, who has since moved to Toronto, lives with her husband. Um, and when she tells them what happened, they're very sympathetic, but they say, you have to go back. You need your job. Um, just be careful, basically. And they send her back. Yeah, it's how it was. So she has no choice. She goes back to the Massey home. But Bert doesn't bother her the rest of the night. But she, for Carrie, the emotional damage is done. She's an innocent um, girl, very young. And she's stuck in this house with a creep. And I'm sure these, it's so funny. It's like, of course, no one knows but her uh, what the actual moves were, but the idea of like catching and kissing yeah. when the, when it's described and you see all those old newspapers, it's all very like cutesy. It's they very it's shit. the nine to five feeling where it's like oh that old perv. But <laughs> clearly, I, I think it was violent. I think it was very scary and very threatening. Yeah, and kissing back then, I think is something you only did when you got married. And yes, shit, probably. It right? was like yeah, touching someone's hand yeah, was like, like a big I'm deal. totally gonna fuck you. <laughs> That's how you let people know. Or a nice note and some violets. There's all these different ways. But Okay, so the next day is Monday, February 8th, and Bert Massey goes to work. And Carrie spends the day freaking out. She's just pacing. She doesn't know what she's going to do when he gets home because she knows it's going to happen again. Um, and she decides to take matters into her own hands. She goes and gets Bert's 32 caliber revolver from his gun cabinet. Oh, fuck. And she waits for him. And then that night, when he gets home uh, for work, uh, for his evening meal, she greets him on the front steps of that uh, mansion with, <laughs> with his own revolver. Holy shit! Yeah. And she points the gun at him and yells, you've ruined me, and shoots him in the chest. <gasps> oh! <laughs> yeah. And the, th- the other thing to keep in mind, too, is he has ruined her. This is, a, this is that time where if, somebody fi- if something like that got out... She's the maid. She's an immigrant. She doesn't have any people in this country. She is ruined. Like, I mean, you got to think too. Like, she told she probably he fucking probably did more than that, and yeah. she didn't want to say. Right. You know what I mean? Yes. Like, it's just it sucks. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That poor thing. Well, so she shot him. Right. So, <laughs> as you do, as one will. The neighbors hear the commotion, they come out, excuse me, they rush to his side, they carry his body off, they try to tend to his wounds, he dies there. Um, She runs upstairs, she changes, she's in her room basically changing out of her maid's uniform and into her own clothes, and when the police come, she turns to them and says, yes, I shot him, and basically goes with them voluntarily. The newspapers, of course, go nuts, the story tops all the news of the day, it eclipses the war. It's, It's that big, and this was... This is the uh, picture. There's that mansion. Is that up there? No. No, that's, um, it says that's the newsboy. Why is he there? I don't know. I'm not sure who that is. <laughs> Maybe they like, the guy who sells you the paper just has a photo of himself. <laughs> I brought this to your house. Yeah. You might consider tipping me sometime, you old bastard. <laughs> Ernest, what is it, Pelletin? Pelletier. Pelletier? He was the leading newsboy of 1915. <laughs> <clears throat> He's in that mix somewhere. And if you read Charlotte Gray's book, which you absolutely should. Sorry. <laughs> 
Charlotte will tell you all about him. I don't have time. Okay. Stop looking at it. Just stop looking at it. Okay. So, when she's questioned by the police, Carrie tells the authorities all about the harassment that took place the day before. She says she shot him as an act of self-defense, and she tells them Burt Massey ruined her character. So, I do think there was more uh, that happened. Um, And she could not continue to live in fear of what he might have done next. Quote, she said, I only thought of his doing me harm. So the next day, Tuesday, February um, 9th, 1915, Carrie's taken to women's court and her charges are formally read aloud. And as they're read, she collapses into tears and sobs convulsively. In her official statement, she states that she watched as Massey returned from work around 6.15 p.m. And that's when, as she states, quote, I seemed to lose control of myself and ran upstairs and got the revolver. So at the trial, which was days later, which is just such a weird thing to think about, they turned that shit right around, um, people came to the courthouse in droves. Everybody was like, I gotta be here for this. And not only because the Masseys were this very famous Toronto family and very, you know, upper class Toronto family, but also because they came to support Carrie. Um, yeah, so, in fact, <clears throat> there was such an outpouring of support, not only cards and letters, but financial support, that she was able to afford one of the best lawyers money could buy at the time. Oh. His name was Hartley Dewart. Yes. <clears throat> so, her trial begins on February 26, 1915, and it's an all-male jury. Um, you know, but hang in there. Um, <laughs> courtroom is packed to the brim everybody's it, it's on so <laughs> the prosecutor of course tries to call Carrie's credibility into question saying that she's young she's poor and she's hysterical mm-hmm. um he also reminds the jury that um they're only getting her side of the story because Bert Massey can't defend himself in court because she killed him but then um when the defense lawyer Dewart makes his case he focus on he focuses on Carrie's good reputation and strong moral values he also shows the jury her medical records so basically they had her um they had doctors examine her and they had medical records proving that she was a virgin. Oh, God. It's awful, but, but they're basically like, boom. So, because she's a virgin, they argue, uh, he argues, her only intention was to preserve her character and her chastity. She did not, this wasn't some, like he said, she said, you know, running around the table, cutesy thing. She did not want to have sexual relations with Bert Massey. He ends his argument by lauding her as a hero. Quote, She is a heroine, a woman of strong character, of stamina, of strong principles. And then he says, if she did not, he actually found this, if she, (laughs) if she did not defend herself against this man, she would have been a fallen woman, an outcast, one more sacrifice. Let that sink into your mind. This was not manslaughter. This was brute slaughter. (laughs) Look at him. It's a good guy. That's a good guy. Yeah. 
And what he really is also calling into, into that courtroom that day is basically saying, this is what happens if, if somebody gets raped. This is what happens right. to women. The victims are the ones that fucking get tossed out. Then they become sex workers. Then everyone goes, they deserve everything they're getting. And it's, it's because this is what happens in the first place. It's like all of a sudden, and it's, it's so fucking like modern day. Yeah, it's crazy it, that they even like mentioned it back then, yeah. especially a man it's, fucking being yeah. like, look what we do, everyone. Yes. Crazy. This is what fucking happens, yeah. and this is the pattern. Amazing. Well, the jury was out for 30 minutes, and then they came back not fucking guilty. Yeah. Amazing. Yes. 30 minutes. Holy shit. They're like, let's have a sandwich, and then we'll go back and fuck it. They went into the room, and they are just like, we're total shit, right? Okay. That's <laughs> Let's fix this. Let's do something. Let's do something for once. Um, oh, after, um, after Dewart gave his, that closing uh, speech, the Chief Justice, uh, look at that, William Mullock, he <laughs> Someday, when all of this goes down here, oh. Um, at the end of that speech, the defense's um, closing argument, he cried. He cried in the, in the courtroom. Yeah. Aww. I know. It's beautiful. You Canadian men, you fucking, you rule. You really do. All right. So anyway, <laughs> I lost my place. I got all keyed up and I lost my place. Um, okay. You stop looking at him. <laughs> Every bartender in L.A. Um, <laughs> truly correcting you about movies fuck you <laughs> what it's fine so Carrie later moves out to the country near Brampton is that your favorite she marries a farmer named Charles Brown <laughs> they have a son, Charlie, a daughter, Sally. They leave. They never pay attention to them, even on Thanksgiving. <laughs> no. She actually becomes the custodian of, uh, of a home for girls. Um, she raises two children of her own. She also was the first person that would go and open the um, church every morning. And she was the person, if someone died in their town, she would be the one that went and closed their eyes. So <sighs> they say, the, the writers, and I believe it was Charlotte Gray and maybe another reporter that's done a lot of uh, work on this story, um, talked about that she basically, in her life, was just giving penance and doing penance for the rest of her life for that. Wow. Um, but she really was, you know, an amazing person. She never told anyone in her family about that part of her life. And the first time her daughter found out about it was when this other reporter came to talk about, he was like, I want to write a book and was talking about it. And the girl had no idea that that's, oh that her mom went through that. God. And then the, the daughter said, it makes perfect sense. Cause that's my mom lived like that. Like she lived like she was giving back. Back and oh. that she was that she owed something. Holy yeah. shit! Yeah. On the other hand, uh oh, Bert Massey was buried in an unmarked grave. Wow. He didn't get into the Massey family crypt. Whoa, that's which, a burn. I don't know about you, but I would love one late Halloween night to see somebody come out of that thing. <laughs> Look at it. It's bigger than Bert's house. Yeah. 
That's creepy as fuck. Who's in there? <laughs> if you had to spend one night in there, would you do it? For how much? A million Yes. <laughs> Easily. Okay. So there's an interesting essay that was written about this case on a website called developmentoftoronto.com. Your favorite. You guys love to go on that there. in the mornings? <laughs> Just to catch up on, on the developments. It was written by a woman named Amanda Saravel, and she wrote, Davies' acquittal represented the triumph of traditional moral um, and tr- morals and values in the changing times of the First World War. Her gender, her race, and her class were all determining factors in securing her freedom. Though these factors were present for many other women who interacted with the Canadian criminal justice system, Davies had the support of the city behind her. Her only wish after her acquittal was to be able to, quote, be back at work, that she could forget it all and be able to go home to England to see her mother. So, essentially, she was a lucky white virgin. Is, is, <laughs> I'm serious. I mean, that's really what's happening here. If she didn't have that fucking doctor's report, I think the point of all of this is I would like to live in a world where no matter how much melanin is in your skin or how much of your hymen is intact or whatever the fuck you've done or whatever your sexual preferences are, that you get some justice in court the way she did. That would be nice, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it? And that's the story of the Massey Maid murder. Blow that up. Amazing. What if I hit a button and that blew up? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, I feel like if it's going to happen anywhere, it's not America. No. (laughs) So. Not the way we're going right now. Uh, But let's be positive. Okay. That was amazing. Great job. Thank you. Hey, do we have time for a home? Home down murder. (laughs) Hey, you got to listen to the rules. Could we? um, There he is. Vince Averill, everybody. Oh, Canada. Oh, Canada. Okay. Okay. Either side. Thank you. Oh, great. Okay. Could we have the lights up just a hint so we can see people and what they're doing? And I'm just going to tell you. I'm going to tell you really quick. Okay. Can I just tell you the rules really? Oh, my God. They're up there, too. (laughs) Hi. I have no idea. Um, <laughs> where else? Where else? Okay, you get up here. Come on. Oh. <laughs> you better not be drunk. You better make it fast. Oh, you better uh, blee blue blah. I think you go that way. Oh yeah, over there. Over th- that way. Oh, go to Vince. <laughs> okay, you can bring <laughs> you can bring the house lights down. Thank you. Do I have lipstick on my teeth? No. Okay, great. You guys better be right. They were oh, all pointing God. at her. Oh my God, there's so much pressure. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> it's Alex, you guys. Get over, over here. here. Take this and then don't get scared. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Where are you from? I'm from, Bur- oh. I'm from Burlington. <laughs> Our favorite place. Yeah. Um, what's your hometown? Uh, so it's actually the murder of my grandmother. Oh, whoa. Yeah, so I'm going to start off and say that I wasn't quite one when she died, so it's not, like, it's personal for me because of my mother, who's actually here in the front row. 
but I'm like a little step back. So for me, it was just like trying to find out this crazy story that they hid for me for my whole life. Yes. <laughs> so my grandmother's name's Edwina Jones. She's from Wales. Uh, she moved to Canada. She met my grandfather, who actually was where in Niagara Falls, but didn't use a barrel. No. <laughs> he just went bye-bye. He went over? <laughs> yeah. Oh, shit. So then he's passed. We're in it now. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's, it's on. Here we go. So uh, if that wasn't enough for my mom, uh, she marries a man who is the greatest guy by all accounts. His name's Jonathan Woodrow. And he's one of those special sociopaths who oh. no one ever knows. is Ugh. He's just the best. So yeah. what happens is, um, so I found out, so what happened was he gets this call from this guy and he, go, he calls his friend and he says, hey, I have an arms deal and I want you in on it. So he was a Scotland Yard police officer in Britain, moved to Burlington and became a private investigator. So he calls his buddy, he says, hey, I got this arms deal. I'm going to get the money. I don't actually have guns, but we're going to fake it. Oh. And his buddy goes, cool, let me know if you need a hand, but I'm going to step back. Okay. Um, so he... He gets this whole thing set up. He tries to kill her with a rag with chloroform on it. She survives. He breaks her wrist, but she survives. Then she goes back to him. Because as we know, it's really tough to say when you're in relationships. And if they're that much of a sociopath, you think they're great. They do everything they they can. They convince you. So she goes back to him. So the cops have been basically... This happens, and they're like, okay, so she might be in danger. But you know what we're going to do? We're going to tap the phone. We're not going to tell her that, because his friend, who he told about the arms deal, went to the cops and said, hey, this is happening. So the cops don't go, hey, Edwina, you might be at risk. They go, we're going to tap the phone, and that's how we'll make sure she's okay. Mm -hmm. So they find out this is going to happen. It's at Spencer Smith, which is, like, right on Lake Ontario. Um, So his plan is he gets a van cuts a hole in the bottom, parks over a manhole. (laughs) Sorry, one second. (laughs) I'm sorry. That's some Bugs Bunny shit. (laughs) No, okay. So, so he's gonna, he's gonna be like, take, give me the money. I'm gonna go in my van, get the guns, but in reality, he's gonna go (gasps) down the hole. He's gonna go into the sewer. Whoa. So, the SWAT team is all there waiting for him, and it's, they put in a, like a fake officer to do the exchange so they do the exchange and they're like busted so they get him they find a gun on him with bullets missing so they race over to my nana's house and he's shot her yeah so he pled guilty uh and he got 25 and he's still in prison oh good when Uh, was this so this was in 1994. Holy shit. Whoa. So his 25 years is up this year. Oh, no. <gasps> Guys, let's all go to the parole hearing. <laughs> so the big thing was, no, he never gave a reason why, which was one of the reasons why the judge, when he sentenced him, said, you are one of the most evil individuals I've ever met, because he basically was like stone. Yeah. And so after 20 years, he started going for his parole hearings. And then he started coming up with his stories of why, because that's what they wanted. So one of his stories is that the guy, uh, 
my Nana found out he, his friend had a gun. And so his friend was like, you got a shooter. So that's story number one. Pearl board's like, cool. That's not a reason. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And it's a really bad story. Yeah. Yeah. So they go to the second reason, and this is when he says, okay, so I couldn't tell you the real story because it was an ex-police officer who, was, who made me do it. And they're like, okay. So he says that he got caught doing a $500,000 cocaine, like the guy framed him for a cocaine sale, and if he didn't kill my Nana, he was going to kill her kids. Uh-uh. I'm already lost. Yeah, yeah. So, and then he also gave reason that his friend was also an RCMP officer. And since the guy could point to him and say, hey, he's a crooked cop. Oh, and he also said his private investigation firm was uh, investigating RCMP's involvement with uh, terrorist organizations. No. So, but every time they keep going, yeah, but you're still not saying why you did it. You killed your wife. Yeah. Yeah. So, and what happened was they keep saying, yes, but you've planned this. You tried to kill her. It didn't work. You tried again. And when they caught him, he had a ticket to the States and $500 in his pocket. So he was planning on peacing out. Yes. Down the manhole. Down that manhole. (laughs) Right to America. So... Isn't that what you want? Right? Isn't that what you need it's, right now? Oh, you could just go down a manhole. Yeah. To Ontario, California. Yeah. Gorgeous. So yeah. gorgeous there. So uh, she uh, is survived by her four beautiful children, and uh, we all still talk about her. Every and what's day. her name? Her name's Edwina. Oh. So, what's her last name? Uh, her maiden name is Jones. Edwina Jones. Jones. Yeah. Yes. Amazing. So, yeah. Yes. That was amazing. Great job. Amazing. Thank you, Alex. That's that's how you do a hometown murder. There it is. You're all forgiven. Great job, this team. (laughs) But I did see one of their faces when she goes, um, the one like sitting next to her when she goes, my grandmother was murdered. The girl went, I'm like, you should (laughs) You didn't know the story? Oh my God. We love Canada. You guys. <laughs> uh, you guys, thank you so much for having us. It's always a fucking pleasure coming here. It's amazing. We played this theater the last time we yeah. were here. And uh, it's it's an incredible room to be in. But this, this crowd, you guys are just such a great crowd and such a, um, it's very cool to go to a different country <laughs> and have people like you there too that's exciting. yeah um yeah that's my speech <laughs> thank you guys we always say this but honestly we are all we are just constantly in awe of this entire thing that's happening the uh, customs person said my favorite murder my favorite murder yeah just like, and then let us on through <laughs> <laughs> she didn't feel strongly about it no. she just didn't love it. So we just can't believe we get to do stuff like this and go to other fucking places and, and talk to people yeah. in faces. It's great. And we Thank get you. to see you guys. We, we say this all the time too, but it really does. The coolest thing is when we meet people in the meet and greet and people go, I came here by myself and it, this is like a room full of my friends. There's something about this community that you guys are building that is magical and beautiful. And thank you so much. Yes. It's amazing. It really is. Thank you. 
I won't do what I did last night, which is almost fuck the audience over because I wanted to say, stay saved, do God's missions. I, that's what I... She fucking... She fucking did that. She goes, stay saved. And then halfway through, I was like, oh, no. I go, stay saved. And the audience is like, what the fuck? <laughs> fuck you. <laughs> but instead great. of that, I will say, stay sexy. And... Thanks, Toronto. <laughs>